Professor Ackerman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. My first question is, what is a story? Oh gosh, it's almost like, what isn't a story? Mm. <laughs> but um, I think there is that old conversation about like situation versus story. Um, you know, like on the way over here, um, this is a, this is just something that happened today, but uh, when I parked, there was somebody in the car next to me, um, a father and son. Um, I think maybe the son had special needs or something, and the father was, like, clipping his nails in the car. And I was like, that's a interesting situation to kind of stumble upon just in your day-to-day life. But you can't just write that and have it be enough. Like, you have to have that's a situation like father and son in the car what I've gathered from you know the situation but the story is how you spin that into a narrative like how you make it either personal if you're writing nonfiction, or how you create um, you know plot around that like is that an opening image scene is it something that comes later on like is it about the dad is it about the boy is it about me as the observer so you can't just write something based on a weird thing that <laughs> that happened you have to be able to kind of arc it out into um like i said plot or if you're writing an essay like there needs to be some deeper reflection and deeper meaning that's happening there so for you a story isn't just bare description of something but there's a analysis of that something and spinning that into an arc narrative with a plot maybe yeah absolutely um because i think a lot of people feel like oh, I have a crazy childhood or I have this like Mm -hmm. traumatic experience, but to be able to weave it into, um, you know, like you said, like a narrative, like that's the the work of a writer rather than just like, look at me, listen to what happened. (laughs) And, um, you know, something that uh, maybe is very important that that person should feel encouraged to share. But like I said, the, the art of a writer is to figure out how to, um, you know, how to reflect on that and whether that's in fiction or nonfiction. I wanted to come back to your initial comment, which I think was very interesting. What isn't a story? <laughs> you want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I just, I think that anything can be turned into story, but I think that it, you need to put the work in to do it. Um, like, what I meant by that is that that mundane situation that just happened, like, I could use that later for something if I wanted to. I don't know that I will, but um, but I could, uh, you know, or just finding this room, like anything could be part of a story, but um, you need to be able to fill in the other gaps of it in order to make it something and not just like, uh, you know, like people sharing their dreams mm. <laughs> in the morning. It's like, what's, why is this important? Like we all dream, this is weird, you know, but to be able to spin it into something is where the work of a writer comes in. So I think anything could be a story. It has potential, um, but you have to be willing to sit down and really like parse it out. There's a lot of effort on the part of the writer. Yes. <laughs> I think this actually segues nicely to my next question, which is you've written plenty yourself, but you've also led workshops and various organizations. What would you say is an important element of writing people don't typically realize when they're just starting or they're just simply interested in it? Um, Well, I think it's like what you were just saying. It's like you have to sit down and do the work. I think a lot of people want to maybe avoid that. Like it it isn't always the fun part of like the sitting down in the chair and doing it. Um, But it's the important part, like putting in the time, putting in the effort. And I think a lot of people like when I teach are like afraid of the blank page. It's very daunting. Like I have all these ideas. I have all these stories in my head, but I don't know where to start. And it's like, you just have to sit down and start. (laughs) You just have to do it. And whatever you write as your opening might be the ending, or it might be cut later on, or it might just be what got you to sit and then write that next paragraph, which is actually the thing that you wanted to say. Um, So I think a lot of people are either looking for like permission or like time, or maybe sometimes like an easy way out of doing the hard work. But I think like the biggest thing that always comes up in classes is like, where do I start? Or like, this is so overwhelming. And it's like, you have to just be scared, but also be like, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, It's like any difficult thing in life. Like it's, it would be weird if you weren't afraid to do it or you weren't, um, you know, like going into it with trepidation, but 
you still have to do it anyway, like despite all of that. There's a level of discipline and entering the unknown and still committing to your idea. Yeah, yeah, you have to commit to it because no one else can tell the story that you're going to tell, but someone else might try to <laughs> if you don't. And, <laughs> right. you know, like you're the only one that can do it your way. Um, so you, you do, it is like a commitment. It's like an unofficial job <laughs> in a way. Do you think it is easier for some people to write a story than it is for others? That's a really good question. Um, I think that there is something about like natural talent or like a natural predilection to being able to just like tell stories well. Maybe it's like your family, you grew up hearing stories or you had like a friend or a relative or someone that was just like really good at that and you picked up on it. But I also do think that writing can be taught. I mean, or else I wouldn't be a teacher. I wouldn't <laughs> be in this business. But um, so I do think that some people are just like, you know, they don't go to an MFA program. They don't even major in English or anything like that their whole lives, but they can still write mm -hmm. and have a talent for it. Um, we've seen that plenty of times throughout history, but um, but I don't I don't know that it's like better if you're naturally talented or better if you're learned in the skill like but I do think it's possible for sure. Mm. What's an M MFA program? So Masters of uh, Fine Arts. So okay. that like we have here at Vanderbilt, um, which we have like a really elite, small, beautiful program of uh, fiction and poetry writers. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a program that had nonfiction as well, which is what I did. But um, like there's this kind of idea that, oh, you have to go to a program like that if you want to be a real writer. And like, I don't think that's true at all. But I think if you want to go and you can get into a program and you have the time and space to do that, then like, why not? Like I, I went to one and I loved it, but I don't think you need to do that to be like a quote real writer. Mm. I feel like there's something for sure. There are d typically people that I've seen in my own experience who are better at writing are also just more creative in general, right? I don't expect my engineering friends to be, uh, um, as inclined to write now if they sat down and write and they learned how to write fiction particularly or nonfiction, uh i think they could close the gap in the talent that might exist mm -hmm. that the talent might create in the first place yeah but i don't know it's it's definitely a back and forth and i don't think there's <laughs> a definitive answer yeah mm -hmm. well it, it reminds me of people that like they're just really good at sports. Like mm. they're like, Oh, I've never played tennis before. And then you like go to the court with them and they're like amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind yeah. of annoying. You're like, well, I've <laughs> taken lessons like my whole life and now right. you're just like a star. But, um, so I guess it could be like that in some ways, but, but I agree with you that, um, someone that's maybe not like learned in that skill could build up that skill over time. And like you said, close the gap. What would you say to the people listening right now is a couple tools that they can use to become better at writing? Uh, one of the biggest tools is reading, you know, um, like reading, finding authors that you really love, finding structure of novel or essays that you really love, like, and kind of imitating those. Like a lot of what I do in my classes and in my workshop is we'll read a piece that I feel like is successful for a myriad of reasons. Um, or sometimes unsuccessful, like sometimes it's experimental and maybe it's going against certain things that are uh, like formally understood as like the way to write a piece. But we kind of dissect it as a class or as a workshop. And then I'll say, OK, write something like in the vein of this or, um, you know, let's imitate the structure here or the voice or, you know, whatever it is. Or I'll give them like a more specific prompt. Um, and so imitation is such a great way to learn <laughs> um, and reading things and finding out, like I said, like what you like, what you don't like, what you gravitate toward, um, you know, all of those things are just going to broaden your horizons. I mean, I feel like I didn't get serious as a writer until graduate school, really, when I was reading <laughs> like five books a week for classes and just was getting exposed to a lot of different writers. I was I was really able to see what I you know how I was going to formulate my style. That's a I think that's a very interesting idea of imitation, uh, especially when you're a beginner and you really don't have substance to go off of. You kind of look back on the past writers or mm -hmm. current writers who are better than you, have have more experience than you, and imitating their their style. So what about the imitation itself is beneficial? Uh, in 
developing your own style. Well, because let's say you read a poem, for example, and they use a lot of repetition of certain words or phrases. Um, you would then, you know, me as an instructor, I would say, okay, well, write a poem or repeat whatever it is. Write a poem that has um, something, a word uh, repeated five times throughout or um, a phrase that's going to be like the first line and the last line. Um, but it can't be the one that they used in the poem that we read. So you're going to be creating something that's similar in structure to that piece, but it's going to have your own voice because mm. you're the one writing it. Um, and I think that it, it kind of builds confidence because, like I said, that blank page can be really scary. Like if you just say, write a poem, it's like, well, I don't have anything to go off of. And um, I, I love that that kind of an exercise because when I was in undergrad and I took a lot of poetry classes, which I don't even really write poetry anymore, but I love studying it. Um, I had a teacher that we would write like villanelles and sestinas and like sonnets and stuff that is maybe seen as like outdated or no one really writes like that anymore, but it was really fun to have at least a structure. And then we got to pick the topic or word choice and, and diction and all of that. Um, that was one of my favorite things to do because it's like it's like a puzzle or something. It's like you're filling in like pieces of a puzzle rather than just starting from nothing. And then sometimes the form can fall away. Like maybe when you're revising that piece, the repetition doesn't work anymore. And so you take it out. But at least you have something to like build a skeleton off of that you're not just like alone on a ledge. Like you actually have, okay, I need to do X, Y, and Z in this piece in order to like turn it into my professor um, or share share it with my workshop. But where you go from there is really up to you. No, I, I really like the idea of imitation again because it almost makes you an active reader. So when you're reading, you're saying, how can I put on this mask? Yeah, and then yeah. use that mask now. And then you read another book and you put on a different mask. It becomes actually very fun. I know that whenever I read Mark Twain or T.S. Eliot, they're two very different voices. But when I'm reading Twain, I can write like Twain. But when <laughs> I'm reading Eliot, I can write like Eddie Eliot. And that's that's fun. Yeah. It's, it's assuming different uh, personas, perspectives, and tastes. Well, that's why that's like my biggest piece of inviting uh, of advice for or for anyone really is to just keep reading because reading whatever I'm reading always influences what I'm writing. Um, when I'm reading fiction, the voice of the characters will, you know, come out in my work or if I'm reading essay, I'm thinking more about like structure and um I 100% I think that what you read influences what you write in a positive way. I'm particularly interested in the relationship between the author and the character they produce and if there's any similarities there and why. So in an article you wrote, you mentioned how the protagonist of your debut novel, The Britneys, quote, is not me. She's more fierce, outspoken. She is wilder, end quote. Can you unpack that? Yeah. Um, it's for, so for specifically for that book, that was heavily based on my experience in a private prep school in South Florida, but like pretty much none of those situations in the book happened. So I was fabricating the the plot, um, but the characters. I think not only the main character, who's the narrator of the book, but I think all the characters have like some aspect that I either wish I had more of, or maybe wish I had less of, or. Um, you know, especially with like the five Britneys in the book, like they all kind of represent a different part of me. It's like the Spice Girls or something. <laughs> Probably dating myself with, with that reference of a, a female <laughs> pop group. But um, but especially with the narrator, like in fiction, you have a lot of freedom to create. And I, I was super shy and anxious in high school. And whenever I did have confrontations with people, I always were just like, you're right. Like, I, I don't want to be in a fight. And and the character in the book is, you know, she stands up for herself eventually, which is me kind of like Tarantinoing it and like rewriting history and, you know, being able to like put myself in that position of, of um, you know, having more power and control over the situation than I felt like I did in real life. It's almost like, you know, the guys who wrote Superman. <laughs> it's like, you know, they were like nerdy dudes in real life and then they wanted to feel powerful. I mean, that's kind of like what, I'm, I'm doing in my work, I'm giving myself like a platform and a, a soapbox to, um, to maybe say the things that I can't say in real life. And, um, but I think pretty much like all of my narrators that I write are some component 
or some like past version of myself or even like a current version of myself. Um, I think more so when I write essay, I'm really me, like who I am right now with like everything I've learned behind me and everything I'm looking forward to ahead of me. But in fiction, I feel like I'm looking at past selves a lot and trying to rewrite them mm-hmm. <laughs> or just give them a space to like open up and and really learn about them. Um, you know, like me, myself, learning about them as the reader is getting to know them. Is that a form of therapy for you to write about your past self and try to deconstruct it and analyze it to its core? Definitely. I mean, I I think writing is very cathartic. I think maybe writing fiction more so than nonfiction, um, because nonfiction can definitely like open up old wounds and like things that aren't yet fully healed, but I still want to grapple with them on the page. But fiction, um, a lot of my or actually, I guess most of my narrators are younger than me. So it's definitely, like I said, these like past selves and versions of myself. And um, it's kind of like getting to sit with them again and, you know, be like, well, I'm, I'm OK now. But like, mm-hmm. let's look at back then and see how we can like re- rework this situation together and really open it up. Hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think writing is more than we think we expect is more than we think it is therapeutic Mm -hmm. because there's plenty of studies actually showing that once you especially people who suffer from tragedy or some sort of child abuse if they write a narrative about it where they were where they are now and where they're going they'll do far better at at uh integrating that tragedy in their life because Mm -hmm. they can see an upward trajectory or yeah. some sort of trajectory because it's it's far better to know where you're going than just assume you can go anywhere. Yeah, I love that. I mean, just yesterday in class, because I teach English at Vanderbilt, and um, we did this whole activity about uh, Joan Didion's on keeping a notebook. Mm-hmm. And I was asking them, like, how many of you keep a diary or a journal? And like, how do you track your progress? And I was really uh, inspired because a lot of my students were saying that, well, I don't really keep a like a notebook in terms of like my grades and like a to-do list or anything like that, which is kind of like how I treat my my agenda. Um, but they were saying that they they will write down their feelings and just like use it as a release and like a like a thought dump of just like this is what's in my head right now. Let me get it out. And and I really love that. I was so glad to hear that because that is very therapeutic for them. Yeah, uh, for my for me, the journal has served so many different purposes over the four years I've been doing it mm-hmm. each day. It used to be, uh, it used to be split down three categories. It's general. So just some general thoughts, what I did right mm-hmm. and what I need to improve on. And then over the years, slowly, slowly, it just became, uh, fizzled down to one asterisk and I just write down whatever I'd like. Oh, and so okay. sometimes there'll be one sentence. I'm mm-hmm. sleepy the next day. <laughs> Cause I usually write them yeah. at night <laughs> or the next day will be like a page and a half of some thoughts or some observation I made throughout the day. And I've I've definitely found it to be very important to my sense of self mm-hmm. because I'm a very forgetful person. I forget what happened in the past, what yeah. happened on March 2nd. So I can just open it up, look at it, and it's like a bomb goes off of yeah. memories. And then I'll, I'll remember that day precisely because mm-hmm. I wrote it down. Yeah, that's like what uh, you... I, I should send you that piece, the Joan Didion piece, um, if you haven't read it, because no, that's what she says in there. It's like, I write to find out what's on my mind. Mm-hmm. And like, we write to find out what our obsessions are, like patterns in our lives, you know. So I I, I love all of that, but I will send that to you. Awesome. <laughs> looking forward to it. Uh, you describe a pivotal moment in your writing career when you decide to write a novel inspired by your experiences instead of a memoir. To that, you say the following, quote, I was no longer stuck in trying to get things right. I was immersed in a freedom that still aimed at telling the truth, but the truth of the feeling. Can you unpack that? Yeah, so after my memoir was published uh, by Red Hen Press in 2018, um, you know, I had been working on that all throughout grad school. I was like knee deep in it for so long and I just kind of needed something fun <laughs> and like a change of pace. And so while I was actually still in grad school, I started writing these short stories just kind of inspired by high school times. And um, like I said, like creating these like fake scenarios for people like me and 
you know, girls that were very much like my friends growing up, just aspects of their personality. Um, and I, I did really have five best friends named Brittany. We were in a group, but, <laughs> but the characters are kind of different than, you know, the, the real people in real life, um, especially the, you know, the narrator and the, the very best friend. But I just kind of was writing these things for fun. And, um, and I went to a workshop uh, like the summer after grad school. And that question came up of like, well, if this is kind of based on your experience growing up, like, why wouldn't you just write like another collection of essays about this, you know, about your high school days or about, you know, coming of age? And, and I was like, I don't know, I just, because I'm, I'm not really concerned with, um, you know, doing that kind of work for it. Like I, like I wanted to, I wanted to try to write a novel um, to really plot out, you know, what happened with these, with these girls and like a year in the life. And so much of what I wanted to do would have involved, or it did involve taking things out of timeline and context and like, well, this actually happened when I was a freshman, you know, not a, or this happened when I was a senior, not a freshman, or this actually happened back in middle school, but I'm putting it, you know, later on in life. Like, so I didn't want to have to focus on getting it all right. <laughs> and mm. which I was really like adamantly doing in the, you know, in the memoir, like I was interviewing my brother and like my mom and, um, you know, going through albums and, um, I just didn't, you know, for, for this, I wanted to have the freedom to like remove time and, um, and remove all of that kind of constraint so that I could just really focus on the feeling of being a teenage girl that has anxiety and, um, you know, is, is growing up in this environment that is very privileged and, um, but she still has a lot of problems and is like trying to figure out who she is and, that to me was more important than like, well, let's write these essays about prep schools in South Florida and like make a commentary about that. Like I didn't really, you know, not that I don't have anything to say about that, but to me, I, I really just wanted to focus on, on girlhood. It sounds like it very much reminds me of Oscar Wilde's notion that art isn't there to represent reality as accurately mm -hmm. as possible. It's more so to convey a feeling and because art is, far more complex and it it's it's its own reality mm -hmm. let's put it that way yeah so absolutely. do you agree with that notion i do um i don't think uh, i heard there's an author i really love sheila hetty who's a, a novelist and mm -hmm. she um she said something once in a workshop where she was like art you know art isn't a place to to say like it's just a place to be <laughs> and um, and that reminds me of what you just said. Like, it's it's a place where, like, anything is possible. Like, you don't always need to have, you know, a message in mind. Like, the message is going to be received differently by everybody right. anyway. Yeah. Like, when you read a book, it's going to be a different interpretation than when I read a book. Um, you know, maybe some things will overlap and maybe there's some themes and symbols and, you know, all of that fun stuff. But um, it's just a place to, like, let go. And so I definitely agree with that. I think we're both on the same track uh, in terms of being more inclined towards literature that is, let's say, idealistic and not as realistic. Mm -hmm. um, I, over winter break, I was reading a novel, uh, Nana, by the French writer Zola. Oh, and, yeah. And he's yeah. a realist writer, and I was bored out of my mind. There's, <laughs> I mean, that's probably a very dramatic statement for uh, because it's Zola, but mm -hmm. I, I, I don't tend to... My, for me, the function of art was never to somehow show some aspect of reality. It's always to just kind of go somewhere else mm -hmm. temporarily yeah. and see what I can learn there. Yeah, I agree. I I need any escape <laughs> I, can, I can take. Yes. How important is structure, uh, i.e. an outline, uh, for creative writing? I think it depends on the project because... Um, a lot of what I've what I found in my time writing is that uh, subject matter or like topic will often dictate structure. Um, sometimes structure is a place to start, though. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm a huge fan. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. I love reading things that are in lists. Like I love an essay that's like in a list or um you know, any like poems that are in lists, like I love Roman numerals, like, I don't know, I just love having something organized like that. And so in, when I teach creative nonfiction, we always do an activity where we write a list essay. 
But a lot of the time, the second, third draft of those, like the list falls away and it becomes something else, a different form or the num- the Roman numerals go away. They get right. deleted. So sometimes f- form and structure can be a way to get started, but it can change throughout. So I think it's important, but as long as people realize that it doesn't have to stay that way forever, that like it probably will change. And there's been very few times where I've written something in a list that has actually stayed that way and then like been published that way. Um, usually I'll write something in that form, but then I'll realize like, oh, this can just be in paragraphs. Like I don't need this or the li- like, why do I need a list of 28 things? Like that seems really arbitrary. Like I can be something else. Um, but in terms of like novel writing, or writing like a collection of essays or like a bigger project, I do like to have some kind of an outline, whether it's just, um, like I just recently this year learned about this thing called beat sheets, which sounds really strange, but it's basically for film writing where it's like the opening image, like inciting incident, like kind of just how to plot out a film, but you can do it in your writing too. And that I've found to be helpful after a first draft is done of a novel because then I'm like, oh, am I hitting the beats at the right times Um, rather than like starting with the beat sheets and then trying to write. But maybe some people do it that way. I don't know. Um, There's one from Blake uh, Blake Snyder called Save the Cat, which is a really good one. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that. But but with essays, sometimes I'll just write like – ideas that I have or like I was saying in the very beginning like a situation like okay my brother's graduation or like when I got my driver's license I'm like I know I want to write about that but I don't know what the essay is going to be yet and maybe like some two of those things will overlap and they'll become one thing um, or maybe I'll you know pull in other ideas that I've had so um, sometimes I'll just write down like bullet points of ideas and then come back to them but I think structure just looks different for everybody. And sometimes people need, like I said, like a prompt or they need something to really go off of. Or I know other writers, I mean, God bless them. Like they could just go and they don't have an outline <laughs> or a plan or anything. Yeah. And But I have to have something like I have to have some kind of notes or like I'm a huge fan of um, there's a now that I'm like super pregnant, I I walk the track at my local gym and I feel I'm like with all the old ladies in the morning. It's just great. But, um, and they like play music on their phones, like without headphones. Like it's like one of those situations. Um, so I bring headphones so that I'm not having to listen to that. And I'm a huge fan of just on my phone in the notes app, like right. writing down things I see or just like ideas I have. Cause I think moving to like we always think of ideas when we're like on a hike or like on a walk or like just walking to class or something like you get an idea so I'm a huge fan of just any of those little things just writing them down and then coming back to them later and being like okay is this really an idea I want to like parse out or is it just something for later and you know so um I don't know I think structure it looks different for everybody but for me it is very important whether it's I start with structure or whether I look at it after to see if I'm, you know, hitting all the correct moments and things that I need to. Yeah, there's actually so much to unpack here. For, well, for one, <laughs> I, you said beat sheets, so I got really excited and pulled up the PDF that sits oh, on my computer yeah. at all times. <laughs> yeah. This is from John Truby's book. Um, yeah, there's so many different yeah, variations, but right. yeah. Um, and then the second thing, uh, for sure, I think, I think sure some people benefit more with uh with the structure and that's definitely me and then i 100 percent agree with your notion about lists i particularly write in lists actually yeah. so um in high school every senior has to give a chapel talk at my uh mm-hmm. at my school back in san antonio and the way i had structured it was three lessons that i had learned throughout my life and I guess the thing about lists are very interesting is that you get structure for one, but then you get diversity. Yeah. You're able to talk about three ideas. Mm-hmm. So I actually recently wrote an article for for The Hustler. It's about three cities I visited and three lessons that are attached to each city. Oh, Again, cool. the same thing. I didn't realize that until you mentioned it. I guess I do like lists. Yeah. <laughs> well, and some people have like, I know there's a writer, Pam Houston, who I took a workshop with once and she was like, I'm obsessed with the number 12 for some reason. Mm. And so everything I write is in like 
groupings of 12 and um and eventually like one of her one of her books was like she wrote like 12 by 12 of something and like so i don't know some people like for me it's like things in tens for some reason like but then if i'm writing a list piece and it goes to like 11 or 12 i'm like oh this could just be in paragraphs (laughs) i'm like only if it's 10 will i keep it as 10. Um, but yeah everyone has so maybe threes is like your thing but but that makes sense like you know it's like a first act second act right like it it feels complete Mm, i I definitely tend to think in terms of movies Mm -hmm. um yeah and for me, uh, another special number would be seven, which is typically mm-hmm. my draft number. I try to hit seven, and it feels fine. Oh, is there a certain yeah. number for you in terms of drafts, or is it just whatever you reach? Um, is there some sort of milestone? Or It depends, because, like, on, on bigger projects, I mean, with the Britneys, for example, like, that, I don't even know how many revisions yeah. we went through in editing, but um, with, like, an essay or, like, a short story, I feel like... I get to like four or five drafts of that. Um, the first one is just like I write it. Right. And then usually by the second or third, that's when I want somebody to look at it, like a writer friend or my husband or my mom or whatever, <laughs> and just be like, can you check this for grammar? Um, or if it's like a writer friend, I'll be like, hey, can can I get some like feedback in line edits and then look at it a couple more times? Um, but even if a piece, I send it out and it gets rejected, like, you know, a couple times over, I'll, I'll, you know, withdraw it and then look at it again and maybe even do another edit. So with a bigger project, like infinite number of drafts until publishing day. And then with smaller things, I try to just, you know, really give it my all like on a, on a few different versions of it and then see if it's working. And then if it's not, you know, go back and, and fix whatever's not working. Do you enjoy the revision process? Is it, is it, as fun as writing it or more or less i used to really dread it like i was like mm-hmm. well i already did the work like what you know but <laughs> but now i love it because i think some of my best work happens in revision like i'm i'm revising the opening of a, a novel project right now and i was dreading it like i took january off because that's my birthday month so i was like i'm taking it off i'm not going to look at this thing and i think you need distance from a piece too sometimes because you're just so used to it and you're seeing it every day. Yeah. Um, so when I went back, though, it's been really fun to go back in. And, and some stuff I'm like, I can't even believe I wrote. Like, this is terrible. <laughs> and, like, getting to take that out and before yeah. anybody sees it. Like, um, you know, and then getting to change it and make it better. So I really do like it. But I still have that, like, uh, it's like the work part of it. <laughs> like, you know, so I have to reward myself. Like today when I wrote, I went to eighth and roast and like got, they have this like, oh, it's delicious. They have this like strawberry matcha with oat huh. milk drink. It's like so girly and like disgusting, but like that was my reward okay. for like doing the work today. I was so, going to say that sounded good, but I guess it's, it's bad. No, no, it's <laughs> like, it's disgusting in that like, it's just so pink and like so <laughs> basic yeah, you know but yeah. i actually brought it home and my husband was like what is that and i was like oh it's called the um what, the evermore and it's strawberry matcha and he's like i don't think i'm gonna like that and then he took a sip and he's like this is so good <laughs> and i was like i know i don't i hope they it's for valentine's day you oh, know, that okay. whole, that's why the whole thing but um but yeah very very good <laughs> Do you typically find yourself in a position where you've overdrafted or have, cre- have revised it too much or refined it too much? I know from my own experiences, it typically, like my first large piece was one to three drafts. It was like severe revision and rewriting. Mm-hmm. And then three to seven was, or I'd say like three to five was, all right, let's put some elements back. And then from six to seven, I was like, let's really put some elements back for my very first draft. Yeah. So do you have that constant pull and push? Um, I don't like personally suffer from feeling like I'm overworking a piece, but I think it's definitely possible. Like I've, I've definitely seen people wrestle with that of it's like a painting. It's like at a certain point, you're going to make it worse, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and it's all a draft until we die anyway. Like, I, I forget who said that, but I, it's <laughs> not me saying that. But but I believe that. It's like even, um, you know, I'll do reading sometimes, and I'm reading out of my published printed book, 
And I'm like, oh, I would change that. Or like, <laughs> and like in my head, I'm like changing words or sometimes I'll even like write uh, things down. And yeah. so it's like, it's, you know, it's never going to be perfect. I think at some point you have to let go of it. And I think I've just gotten better over the years at like knowing when to let go of it. It's almost like gambling. It's like quit when you're ahead. Right, like, right. Um, because I think you can overwork it. And, and like I said, when you're too close to it and you're just seeing it all the time, like you really need to just step back a little bit. Um, and I don't know, I don't necessarily have like tips and tools for how to do that, but I think, uh, I think editing has helped me too. Like I'll edit other friends work or when I'm in workshop, like I have a workshop coming up next week, like seeing other people's work and when they revise and being like, okay, stop here. Like, it's really good now. Or like, you're, you're so close to being able to, you know, send this out. Like it's, it's almost there. I think sometimes people don't realize how close they are and they think, oh, I've got like years ahead of me, but really like, no, you can, you can definitely send this out. Like it's, you've, you've done the work, you know, you, sh you should be proud of it. Yeah. I think especially for the first piece that I made large piece was at the end, just saying there's something a tad beautiful about a little messiness. Yeah. If yeah. it's too refined, it looks almost, you know, psychopathically structured. Yeah. And it, <laughs> nobody enjoys too much structure. Mm -hmm. There has to be a little messiness, a little humanness to it. So do you have a writing routine and what does that look like if you do? Yeah. Um, you, my, my most practiced routine is basically just doing a thousand words a day. Um, which I did not make up myself either. <laughs> Everything is like an imitation or borrowed, but um, to the writer Jamie Attenberg, she uh, talks about that practice a lot. She has like a newsletter and, and she does like a thousand words of summer. And that's when I started doing it, it was a few years ago, um, where you just for two weeks straight, you write a thousand words every day. It doesn't matter what time or whatever, but like you don't miss a day. And I did that for two weeks and then I just kind of kept going and like was like, how long can I do this for? Yeah. So I definitely still don't do it every day. Like I just said, I took off all of January because I had finished a project and um, wanted to just give myself distance. But when I'm working or I say like when I'm like tweaking on a project, like if I'm really working toward a novel or, you know, essays or something like that, it is I, I do try to do every day. And if I miss a day, then I'll do like 2000 words the next day. Um, on my last project, I don't know, I hadn't written for like four months because I had a really rough first trimester of pregnancy. And so when I started writing again, I was writing like four or 5,000 words a day, not because of like, oh, I'm, you know, pressuring myself to do it, but I just missed it a lot. Right. And, and it was just like kind of coming out of me, like you know, at a higher rate than usual. Um, and so that was great. But now I'm kind of back in the swing of like a thousand words a day. And like, that feels really good. And um, I know some people that like, they do the same thing, but they won't let themselves go over. And I always let myself go over. I'm like, if I have the energy, like if I'm caffeinated, like I'll go <laughs> over, like it's all good. Um, and I, I do like to write in the morning, but Sometimes like I teach early or whatever. So sometimes it happens in the afternoon, but, um, but I prefer to wake up, like exercise, get coffee or make coffee at home or get my pink drink, whatever. And then work like, and just me and the work, um, you know, uninterrupted and then like feel good that it's done for the day. It's really, I'm not like a night writer mm. at all. Okay. Like I do not do anything at night. When I was in college, I was totally a night owl and I would stay up until like four in the morning. But oh, man. now I go to bed, like literally I'm in bed at like 8 p.m. Like I'm a loser. Like <laughs> No, I go to bed at <laughs> nine. So okay, good, good. both losers then, I guess. I just like, and I don't know if it's like pregnancy or whatever, but I am just so tired and I can't think straight. I like to read at night. Like reading is, you know, it, it kind of calms me down and, and all of that. But um, like I can't really wake up and read, but like, I like waking up and writing and being in that kind of non-judgmental state where I'm not fully awake yet. And the coffee is like trying to work. And then, um, you know, I'm just like in the zone. Do you want to take a break and, fin and come back? Um, I'm okay. okay. If, if you need a break, you no, no, I'm all right. But I'm good. Yeah. Uh, I think the, uh, time of the day, uh, is very, very important to me, actually. For me, it's always around sunset. Um, mm -hmm. So typically around 7.30, 8, 
and that's when I'm the most creative. I'm not oh, sure why. I think yeah. it's part of it is like sleepiness is crawling up my neck, and it's mm-hmm. like kind of making me think differently, kind yeah. of sending me in that realm. Uh, Professor Barsky, uh, Robert Barsky, he's in the French literature. He's he's in a lot of departments actually, but he calls it uh, the place in the in betwixt and in <laughs> in betwixt and between place, which mm-hmm. is like a place where you're both in reality and you're kind of exiting and coming back in and out. Yeah. And that for me is like the most fun state mm-hmm. to be in when writing. And, you know, there's particularly like, is there any music you listen to when you're, when you're writing or um, is it particularly soundless? It depends. Cause like I, I make playlists for the projects that I'm working on. So sometimes I'll listen to that, but if I'm like at a coffee shop or something, I'll, I like the just kind of ambient noise of like the, you know, the espresso machine and like whatever music they have. And, um, but if I'm at home and it's like six in the morning and I'm writing, I like the quiet because that's like the only time you will get that. Mm. So it really just depends, but I can write with or without it. I don't need like a perfect ideal situation. For me, for my first piece, it was, I, I'm not kidding. I think I listened to every single John Coltrane uh, jazz (laughs) album that's and now great. for this next piece, all I can listen to is this Polish, I believe he's Polish, pianist named uh, Franz Liszt. Oh, okay. Who my uh, Blair roommate introduced me to, and now I can't stop listening to him. Uh-huh. And what I've noticed is the way I write is influenced, the pacing of how I write is mm-hmm. influenced by what I listen to. So for the oh, first yeah. piece, listening to jazz, the prose is a lot more drawn out and meditative mm-hmm. and and romantic. Um for this next piece, it's very quick, fast-paced dialogue, yeah. not much description. It's very chaotic. Yeah. So I found that music is very powerful and and, and influencing yeah. prose. Yeah, so. absolutely. I wanted to go back to the idea of the author and the character and the, some sort of resemblance between them. How important is the author's image in understanding their work, it's particularly when the characters they're representing are similar to them? Mm. Um, I feel like I have kind of maybe like controversial views about this, but I don't think the author like needs to have anything to do with their characters. Cause like we were saying before, it's not a place of reality. Like it's something else. I mean, maybe if you're like a journalist or something like that could be important. Like if you're a political writer or, um, or even just like, you know, you work for a newspaper, like maybe your image or like the things that you stand for, the things that you believe in, like are implemented in your writing. But um, just because like I have a character that says something or believes something does not mean that I say or believe that. Mm. Maybe it's something I've said and I regret, or maybe it's like a thought that I'm grappling with, but it's never anything like rooted in like a, a really grounded reality <laughs> of like, this is the truth. Like, um, so I don't think it's important, especially like in the kind, I don't know, like in creative writing, like I don't, I don't think it's important that the author resemble their characters or like be aligned with their characters or like to make known that they're not aligned. Like, because it just, um, you know, that's like a painter painting a bowl of fruit and they were like, well, don't worry. I don't actually like bananas. You know, <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's art like it's you know that's it's not it doesn't matter the author's opinion of it or you know so that's how I feel about it but I know people don't feel that way um like people feel like they have to like apologize for characters in their work or situations that come up and I just kind of think that's like ridiculous I think you know I don't know but that's that's how I feel about it I agree I absolutely agree and um I, rem- I remember watching an interview of Hunter S. Thompson and how the BBC reporter kept mentioning how his character in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was very similar to him, and <laughs> he got very angry and and asked the BBC reporter how he got hired and insulted him. And yeah. he, he very much hated the idea that him and his character are one thing. Mm-hmm. He wanted that separation. Yeah. And some people like to think that tragically his suicide was almost like this one's got to exist and the other's got to go type Mm -hmm. uh, manifesto yeah and I think that this is something that like specifically women deal with a lot too because yeah in that situation that you know that was terrible and and I I remember that happening but it's like a lot of the time like female fiction writers 
people just assume that the stories are about them. <laughs> and it's like, it's fiction, you know, mm-hmm. like, but sometimes uh, male writers can get away with that more or they don't get like questioned as much. Sure, um, yeah. But I think either way, like it's still, like I said, pretty ridiculous to like equate the author with like a fictional character that exists in a fictional world. You've mentioned in an article how in your novel, The Britneys, the location of Southern Florida is important. Why can the location be important in a story? Um, so yeah, specifically for the Britneys, I mean, Florida is huge. I remember as we were talking about revision, one of the biggest things in my revision was like making Florida pop more mm. and like giving more details about South Florida, the the version of it that I grew up in um, and the version that I wanted to portray, um, which was a lot of like the dichotomy between like this really beautiful place with like palm trees and beaches, but also like the harshness of like there's a hurricane in the beginning of the book and, um, you know, like power lines are down and like weather is bad. And so just all the, you know, the the both sides of, of the coin on there. Um, but I, in that way, I think that location and setting and place can absolutely be a character of its own in the work. Interesting. Um, there's so many writers that write about Florida that uh, that do it so beautifully and really make it a character, like Lauren Groff and Sarah Gerard, um, uh, you know, Alyssa Nutting. Um, I mean, there's just so many people that write about Florida just so beautifully and and like. Uh, What's, I, why can't I think of the opposite of beautifully? Um, just chaotically, too, like mm-hmm. the chaos that is Florida. Um, you know, all of those like meme headlines that you see <laughs> are just like so true of how crazy it is there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing that, well, actually, the thing I'm writing now also takes place in Florida. So I guess I'm kind of obsessed with Florida. But the next thing that I'm, I'm working on takes place in kind of two places. And I've written stuff about California. Um, or other places that I've lived. I've written about the Midwest. Um, and I think that all of those things are, or all of those places, like they have a feeling to them. Like they have a vibe, as the kids say. Like, um, <laughs> you know, they have personality. They're like Florida feels different than Indiana, you know, and New York feels different than Los Angeles. And even like different parts of Florida, like South Florida feels different than Orlando or like Northern Florida. Um, or even then Miami, like there's all different personality traits that these places have. Um, so I think that it only benefits a writer to really like bring that out even more. And I always tell writers that are that are you know working on pieces like we should know where we are, <laughs> you know, but in the first few pages, like right. that should be first and foremost. Like setting and place is really important. No, I, um, for one, I'm also writing about Florida, particularly oh, the Panhandle. Yeah. Though I, oh, I get very yeah. uh, romantic about the Panhandle. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's it's one of my favorite. Actually, it's my favorite place in the world. I forgot. Wow. I'll admit that. Um, <clears throat> but that's interesting. How do you capture the essence of a place because mm-hmm. it has a personality attached to it? Yeah. Um, and I think that takes an observant person and a writer. Is do you, would you say a writer is inherently observant? Is that it's is that the writer's most um, important quality or is there another quality? I I think, I don't know what like the most important quality would be, but I think that is definitely an important quality mm-hmm. is to, to be able to sit back and observe and absorb. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always taking kind of mental photographs of people and places and things. And um, sometimes it feels like a curse almost because it's hard to be present, but um, I think that's, the curse of kind of being a writer too. It's like, we just can't help ourselves to be like, Oh, I want to use that later. Or like, Oh, that thing that someone just said, like, that's a line of dialogue, you know, and like stealing things around us and borrowing them and using them in our work. I mean, I think that is kind of what makes a writer. How does, sorry, God, these uh, sinuses are absolutely (laughs) killing me. I know the weather has just been, all over the place yes. here. How does an upcoming writer get their book published in today's competitive world? And it is competitive. Um, I think uh, this is something that comes up a lot in the classes I teach, too. It's usually at the end. Someone's like, how do I get published? You mm-hmm. know, and um, they ask with trepidation because it is such a big question. And the way that I always answer this is, 
Well, you have to do the work first. Like you have to have a manuscript if you want to get published. Um, and I'll just keep this conversation to like books and larger projects. Mm-hmm. Um, because let's say you do query an agent or you submit to a press without an agent. Like some places do accept, you know, unsolicited requests. Um, a lot of places actually. And there's so many new, like smaller indie presses that are popping up and they're like, you don't need an agent. Like you don't need anything. Like you just need a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but let's say you do query somebody and they love your idea. They love you. And they say, great, send me the manuscript. And you only have, you know, a hundred, like 20 pages. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what is that? You know, then you're like, oh, well, I don't, it's not done. You know, then they're gonna be like, okay, well then come to me when it's done. Maybe I'll be waiting for you. Maybe not, you know? Um, so I think to like, like, don't put the, you know, the cart before the horse, like you have to write the thing first, go through that revision process, like, you know, have, have a, a workshop that you're a part of, or like a, a collaborative writing team where you can like, talk to your friends about ideas and stuff. And um, a supportive place so that you're not really like in it alone. <laughs> um, you know, some people like to go it alone, but I think there is something to the communal effort that is a book. Um, I mean, nowadays, like when you look back at the acknowledgement pages of books, it's like people are thanking their first readers. And I think that that's really beautiful because a book is not a solitary effort. You know, like it, it's a lot of eyes on the page. Um, you know, yours are first, but it's, it's other people too. And that, that support. So I would say like, write the thing first (laughs) and, you know, worry about that part of it. But in terms of, uh, like the process of getting published, there's lots of different routes. I mean, my first book, I won a nonfiction contest, so I didn't have an agent for that one. Um, I was just submitting to like first book contests, like emerging authors, emerging writers, um, there's a lot of that stuff. And then with the, you know, in between my first and second book, I I queried a lot of agents and I, I was able to get one um, that I, you know, me and him like aligned and he saw my vision for the second book. And, um, you know, but that could take years sometimes. And, and it did take me years, like from when I sold my first book to when I sold the second one and from when I got the agent. Um, it just looks different for everybody. I think that there's a misconception of like, this is the right path to take, but it really can look like some, some writers that I know that I love, like they don't have an agent. They never have, they don't need one. Like it's kind of one of those funny things. Like by the time you get an agent, you don't really need one. Like if you're already selling books and, um, you know, you're working, you're a working writer, like you might not need that. And then I know people that have had one agent for like, 20 years Mm -hmm. or I've known people that have a different agent for every book that they've published or a different publisher for every book. Um, So there's not like a single trajectory or like a correct path, but I think it just has to be a good fit. Like I think the biggest piece of advice I would give to, to writers that are just starting out is like, don't just sign with somebody because they're saying yes, like sign with them because they understand you and they're going to help grow you. And you also don't want a bunch of yes people around. Like you don't want to get signed by an agent and then like your book just sits there forever. Like you want someone that's going to be like, let's work on this together. Like, I really like this and I believe in you, but like this needs work. Like, are you willing to do the work? And so you don't just want someone that's like, yeah, you're great. You're amazing. But then like nothing ever happens, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I, I think in short, there's a lot of different ways to get to an end goal, but the end goal is kind of changing a little bit, like big publishing, you know, it's, it's always going to be there, I think. But I think these, like I said, these kind of, uh, you know, smaller independent presses that are doing really beautiful work, um, they're like popping up all over the place. And some there's like authors that are founding these things. And it's very promising, because I think there is kind of like a pattern, (laughs) to say it very nicely, um, happening in big publishing that I don't see happening in like the indie book world. And so it's really, it's really been promising to see more books and more authors, you know, just kind of come out with stuff that's like new and interesting and diverse. And, um, I don't know, I feel really excited about that and I don't know where my next book will end up, but like, 
I don't I don't need it to be in any one certain place. Like I just I want my work to be where, you know, where 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 it fits best. And did you for your debut novel, did you uh, work through an agent? How did that yeah. look like? Yeah. So in between my my or after I published with the um, when I won the contest, um, it took me a couple of years. And then I started like submitting to agents and um, and I did find an agent and uh you know, it just was a good fit. Like he had two teenage girls and mm. my book was about teenage girls. And, um, you know, he wasn't in New York or LA, like, you know, he lived in Austin and like, we just talked on the phone, we got along and like, he, you know, he has a family and like, it just felt right, you know, at the time. And it felt like a really good fit. And, um, you know, I know some people are like, oh, well you need to have like this agent because like, she's the best or he's the best. But it's like, as long as you, you know, jive with the person and they get what you're doing and they're not trying to change you, like, that's a good fit, you know. Mm. But like I said, you don't necessarily need an agent to get published, especially, and this is like a different conversation, but like to, to get like into a literary magazine or stuff like that, like that you're just like paying $3 for a submission. Mm. <laughs> like right. there's not like a big, you know, oh, you have to, have an agent for that or anything like you can totally just you know publish on your own and um and like self-publishing is still a thing like um you know that works for some people too i don't know a lot about that right, okay. <laughs> so don't ask me a question oh, you, you beat yeah. me to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um but i i do know people that have done it and they're happy with that and you know it, it's like it's just like whatever's gonna work for you you know what is the most important book you've ever read I know I saw that question when you emailed it and it's funny because like like in a way like every book is important but mm. I think my answer with that changes often and I'll just say like I think the most important book I've read in the last few years which I'm like embarrassed that it took me so long to read this book but I finally read Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger and um, I had just never read it and then I had a friend recommend it and um to me, like, like as a, a Jewish woman, like that, you know, that book is about like a, an, a Jewish Irish family and it's about a, a brother and sister and it's about a lot of things. But I just found it um, really important because it was like a, a way of speaking and like a way of life that like I don't often see represented um, like as as poignantly in that book. And it's a it's an older book, obviously, but. Um, it just read truer than like a lot of fiction than I read today. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just loved the characters and like just totally fell in love with them and um, like the family dynamic and everything. And so I don't know, I like if I ever, I don't know, I, I don't get to necessarily choose like a curriculum of books here, but like one day when I get to do that, like that will be on there. Like I think every writer should read that book what was the name again franny and zoe Franny and Zoe. yeah i forget that salinger wrote more than just I catcher know. in the rye <laughs> yeah. well and that's the thing it's like i was never like a huge catcher in the rye mm. fan you know like i think i've grown to appreciate aspects of it but this was like way better to me than okay. that and it's it's funny because it's such a lesser known one mm. but yeah i had a friend uh recommend it and she was like, I can't believe you've never read this one. Like, you'll love it. And so it's actually told in two parts. It's Franny is this, like, short story. Mm -hmm. And then um, Zoe is, like, a novella. But they go together. Oh. It's the same family. It's That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, like, you read the short story first, and then it picks up kind of, like, right where it left off. And, yeah, it's just – and, like, I don't see any of that structure anymore. You know, like, I know, like, Philip Roth had – um, you know, like his novella that then had like short stories and stuff. But I just love that structure. It was so interesting to me. I'd love to try something like that one day. What is writing to you? Um, I think writing is really like a whole life. I know like Annie Dillard calls it the writing life. Like I think I think it is really a lifestyle because I've tried to stop. Like I've been in, in places and moments in my life where I'm like this is really hard and I don't really feel like doing this anymore <laughs> there's so much rejection that comes with it and so much 
time and waiting and you know it's like being an actor or something like it's just it never happens when you want it to happen like everything feels different than you thought it would feel um but to me writing is like the the best parts of it are just that I have the space and the time and the energy and like the focus to do it like when I'm actually just sitting and writing like that is enjoyable for me <laughs> like I'm able to just like push everything else away and focus on what I'm doing and I'm not really able to do that with like anything else in my life um so that's definitely I don't know that's like all that I really care about uh being able to just keep writing like whatever happens happens you know with the success part of that and putting that in air quotes um but just the ability like to to have my life be in such a way that like I could go to a coffee shop on a Wednesday morning and write for a couple hours and um and then maybe like meet up with a friend later and then like cook dinner like it's just like a whole lifestyle and um, I do wonder what my my writing life will look like once I have this baby and like mm -hmm. things are going to change. But mm -hmm. um, and I've had people be like, say goodbye to write. And then I've, <laughs> I've also had people be like, babies sleep a lot and like you're going to have a lot of time. And yeah. um, or that like maybe some of my best work is yet to come because maybe the aspect of motherhood will, you know, change my perspective. I mean, I'm sure it will, you know, so I'm I'm excited and hopeful about it. And. I think I do think that like my best work is ahead of me and and waiting to be written um but I think it is for me at least it's it's like a whole way of life how like you were saying before like how I observe things how I perceive things um how I you know wrap everything up into a story like I can't just like let things be <laughs> and in relationships maybe that's bad but like on the page that's a good thing <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Professor Ackerman, for joining me. That was a delight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.